We're going to be in the book of Titus, um, kicking it off today. We'll probably be here for eight weeks, Lord willing. Before we dive into this phenomenal three-chapter book, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us come to your word as what it is, um, not merely ink on a page, but your living and active word. God, it's a stunning thing that the, the highest heavens cannot contain you. You need nothing. And yet you choose to speak to us. And then in your sovereign wisdom, in your generosity to us, you had your word recorded in this book. And so might we come with a humility to tremble beneath it? Might we come with a hunger that our, our, our minds, our bodies, our hearts would just be so engaged as you feed us today? God, what every single person in this room needs most, without even knowing all of the stories in this room, whether they've been a Christian for, for 36 years, whether they, they've been a Christian for four weeks, God, whether they're here and they're asking questions, whether they're here and they got drug here, God, what every single person needs most is that we would leave this time more impressed with Jesus. So I ask that through the work of the Spirit, you would lift him high, that our hearts might be drawn after him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me begin with a bit of a confession. Um, I have this really bad habit of asking uh, my wife after we go on vacation and the, the bill comes, was it worth it? She hates that question. It's a terrible question. And I ask it because I'm almost always underwhelmed with a vacation. I go and, and I know it's going to be good, but then, you know, is you go, like, was it really worth all the resources that went into it? And so I ask this, was it worth it question? And my wife graciously tells me, stop asking that question. You're wrecking it. And I am, and I know, and I'm working on it. But there are a few times where a vacation has been absolutely better than we anticipated. One of those times was Disneyland 2015. I'm sure you hear the word Disney, and that's a mixed bag. Some of you are like, that is the happiest place on earth. And some of you are like, that is perdition. And so, so we're, we're, I'm probably either side at different moments, but we were down in Disneyland 2015, and we were over in this area called Cars Land. Now, if you've seen Cars or Cars 2 or Cars 3. It's this story of these animated cars that have personalities and it locates itself in this little town called Radiator Springs. It's this little town that's got left by the interstate. It's off of Route 66 and it's just kind of like gone into shambles and it's got crumbled and it just, it doesn't work very well. And so in the movie, part of the, part of the movie is this town kind of having new life infused into it and there's this wonderful scene where there's the main street and there's all these buildings that lined it and they were all dilapidated and unpainted and broken windows and none of the neon signs would light up. And then in the movie, they repair it, they rehab it and then there's this beautiful scene where a little bit of music starts and then all of a sudden at dusk, the neon lights start to come on. Okay, so we're in Cars Land in Disneyland and we are on this main street in Radiator Springs. It looks exactly the same. And I should have clued in what was about to happen, but it's dusk. And all of a sudden, over the speakers, I just hear... Life would be a dream. And this song starts. And I begin to look up. And I look down Main Street. And the far end, one of the neon signs comes on. And then another neon sign. And it goes all the way down the street. And I was absolutely overwhelmed. And I'm, in, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. But I literally said out loud to my wife, I go, this is magical. And it was, it really was. Like it was, I could, I could go back to the same moment, the same, like I, I could try to recreate it, but I can't. 
I can't. It just, it surprised me in a way that was absolutely stunning. It was better than I thought. As we begin Titus, there's a word that we're going to go back to time and time again. It's this word grace. Grace is better than we think. No matter how high of you, no matter how robust you understand this word grace, this unmerited generosity of God to give us what we cannot earn, it is better than we think. And as we see in this text, it actually does more than we often think. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Titus chapter one, verses one through four. This is God's holy, wonderful, flawless, perfect word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Feel free to grab a seat. If you've ever read any of the letters from Paul, the one who wrote this, he wrote half of the the New Testament, 13 different letters out of 27 books. He begins all of them very similar. This is one of the most loaded beginnings. Romans, the book of Romans is probably the other one that has more going on in these first verses. But these are never throwaway verses. It's not just like, hey, I want to get to the real meat of the letter. Oftentimes, these intros are not just telling us who it's it's from, but but also orient us to some of the big themes that we're going to encounter throughout the book. And we see it in the beginning here by this individual named Paul. And then we see these handles that are applied to him, these sort of statements about who he is and what he does. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. We'll look at both of those. The word servant is more literally translated slave. It's the word doulos. It's where if you've ever met a doula, someone who comes alongside another to bring a life into existence, someone who comes to serve. That word took on new meaning to me a number of years ago when I got um, really into watching the Tour de France, which is a bike race that's happening right now. It goes over like 20 stages all through uh, France and it can be in Spain. It can and be uh, in, in Italy. It goes through different places. And these, these guys, they ride over 20 or so stages, thousands of miles and climb 100,000 feet. And one of the things that fascinates me about the Tour de France is that there's always races within the race. It's not just the, what's called the Mayo Jorn, the yellow jersey, the overall leader. Whoever finished all the stages the fastest, they, they, they win the, the Mayo Jorn. But there's also a white jersey that's given to the fastest young rider under the age of 25. But there's also every single stage has its own race. Who won that stage of that race? There's also this polka dot jersey, which is who's the best mountain climber. There's the team jersey. So the, there's teams broken up in this race. And, and whoever has the lowest overall time across the entire team. There's also this one race that most people don't even know about. It's this little red number that gets put on the back of the rider who was the most like courageous on the stage before. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a green jersey, which is who are the sprinters and there's points and there's so much happening here. But the thing that I have found most fascinating about that race are these, these riders called the domestiques, the servants. They're part of the team and when they sign up for the team, they're hired for one reason, to help the leader win. 
So what you'll see a domestique doing is they'll, 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 they'll go back from what's known as the peloton, this big cluster of riders, and they might go to the back and they'll find a team car and they will load themselves up with like 27 water bottles. I mean, they're shoving them everywhere. And then they zoom back forward. They wear themselves out so that the leader didn't have to go back to get water. Or you'll see them carry four or five bags of food and they'll hand them out to their, their teammates. If they're riding next to each other, they're supposed to protect them. The domestiques will go in front and behind and try to keep their, their, their leader the, the, the safe. And so they'll, they'll sit there and if the leader, like let's say they have a flat tire, they'll pull over to the side, they'll jump off their bikes and they'll hand their bike to whoever's supposed to, to lead. And then they'll wait for the team car to give them another bike and then they'll jump back on the bike that's fit for the actual leader and they'll race forward. They'll exhaust themselves, but they never do it for glory. They do it for the good of the leader. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I am a servant of God. My whole life is about him. Kept thinking of the old Oswald Chambers devotional, my utmost for his highest. And then he goes on and he says, I'm not just a servant of God, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That might be the most stunning phrase actually in this Letter, this apostle, now in a general sense, an apostle was somebody who was commissioned or sent out. They could be known as an ambassador, but in a very technical sense, the way it's used of Paul, it's saying this is one given authority to speak God's words. 13 of the New Testament letters through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he penned, Titus being one of these. Now that'd be that may be new for some, that might be really familiar to others. And if it's familiar to others, that this is who Paul is, because he says it so often, I'm a servant and I'm an apostle, that some of its punch may not be landing on you. But it's an unbelievable turn of God's grace in his life. See, Paul was not always Paul. The first time you find him in the Bible, he had another name. His name was, was Saul, and he was the least likely person to ever say that I am about Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church. He hated Christ and he hated Christians. Acts chapter eight, verse one through three, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, who became Paul, Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This text is talking about Stephen and the scene right before the Stephen is being stoned for talking about Jesus. And, the, and Paul or Saul at that time was standing there and everyone laid their coats at his feet. It was a sign of authority that he was the one that was overseeing this and he approved of his execution. And then you get to chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, another way of saying any that are following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This isn't just like a passive antagonism towards Christ. This is an active hatred towards Jesus and his people. If you were going to pick one person to become a self-professed servant of God and to be commissioned as an apostle to write half the New Testament, this is not who you're picking. He's the most unlikely convert. But what we see in this name change and this vocation change, it's the thing about God that he just doesn't work in the ways we do. 
God sees the people that we would give up on. God sees the people that we would throw away. God sees the people that we think would never, ever come to faith in Christ. And he says, that's who I'm going to use. It's grace. God did in his life what no amount of effort from anyone else ever could have done, which was to transform him to say, oh, I want to give my utmost for his highest. We see that idea of grace in the next phrase of verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now we're gonna camp out on that word for a while, that word elect. Now when you hear that word, what do you think? Depending on your church background and exposure, it, it might be a wonderful word, but oftentimes what it becomes is a battle word. It's a war word. We, it's, a, it's a word that we debate and, and fight over, which is so sad because in the Bible, over and over again, it's never a debate or battle word. It's always an all glory to God and unbelievable comfort to his people word. Now, when you hear the word elect, you might think of an election. Is everyone else excited for the next presidential election to happen? Because 2020 was so fantastic. I'm just excited that we get to do this again. And so the way an election works is people raise money, they, 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 they campaign, and what they're doing is trying to say, vote for me, I'm the better candidate. And so when you go cast your vote, you elect somebody, you're saying, I think you're the better candidate. Or if you're cynical, I think you're the less bad candidate, and so I'm going to vote for you. Whatever your motivation, whatever side of your patriotic responsibility to be involved in this process, you are electing somebody based on thinking they're better than the other person. But that's not how the Bible talks about election. I'll try to do a different illustration. Um, being married to my wife, Katie, is, is truly one of the, the best things God's ever allowed to happen. I adore my wife. We've been together um, almost 24 years. Um, in the first service, I said more than 20, and I did the math. So it's been almost 24, 24 years. Um, it's just been absolutely incredible. I can't believe that she chose me. I think about it all the time. One of the places I really think I was like when we're walking together, and she reaches out, and she grabs my hand. And I just feel this like, look, she chose me. It's showing the whole world. She wants me. But, and I say this fully recognizing the grace of God to give me such a grand wife. She chose me, but not in the way that God chooses us. We dated. You know what dating is? It's, it's, an, it's an ongoing interview. That's what you're doing. You're auditioning for the part of man or wife. I mean, that's what, what you're doing. You're saying, I am going to be worth marrying. So we spent four years auditioning one another. Now we blew it, we failed, we forgave, we did all those different things. But there was a point before we got married where we said, hey, I think you would make a good spouse and I would like to try this with you. If she thought I was absolutely terrible, and now you might have been like, well, you had her snowed. That may be true. But she at least thought I performed well enough to say yes when I proposed to her. But that's not how Election works in the Bible. God is not saying, well, I've reviewed your resume, and I think you bring a lot to the table. I think you'll make a fantastic Christian. Yes, I will pick you. Um, it's not like pick up soccer or basketball or anything else you ever do on the playground, where you go on the playground, and the two people that are perceived to be the best, they get to be the captains, and then everyone lines up. 
And some of you love that moment because you knew you were getting picked first. Either you were the most popular or you were the best. And maybe you were the best and so you were the most popular. You loved pickup sports. And some of you just absolutely hated it because you knew it's like, great, I'm the last one standing here. It's how we go into job interviews. I'm going to try to put my best foot forward so that I can get the job. It's how we pick a place to eat. Most of us are not saying, you know what, tonight, I wonder where I could go that would give me food poisoning. I'm going to choose that place. <laughs> right? You, you pick the thing that you think is worth it and good and, and satisfying. It's how you do fantasy sports drafts. I've only done fantasy sports drafts a few times. But, it's, you know, you're picking your team, and you're not picking the worst people. You're picking the best team you can possibly have to win. It's how you pick vacations. It's how, it's, it's how you do anything. Pretty much anything else we choose in this life, we choose it because we think it's better or best. Remember Paul. Remember who he was. God chose him. God, out of the overflow of his generosity, by his grace, he marks out, claims, pursues. And this is going to be important as we go through Titus. Not because of anything in us, but because of his Love and kindness. The beauty of this idea of God, elect, choose, uh, another word the Bible uses is the, the word predestined, came really alive for me when I was in seminary as I was reading the book of Deuteronomy. As I'm reading through Deuteronomy, I get to chapter seven particularly, and just this, this incredible glad pursuit of God became so vivid. And then I, co- I, I couldn't not see it everywhere else. Deuteronomy seven, six through eight. For you are a people holy to the Lord. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. If you're a Christian, I just want to like, God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That's how he flinches. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. That is such good news. It's not because you were going to be the most faithful. It's not because you were going to tithe the most. It's not because you're going to volunteer the most. It's not because you would raise the best kids. It's not because you would volunteer the most. It has nothing to do with your output. But it is because the Lord God loves you. And it's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, perhaps the word elect is too wooden. It, it laps, lacks some of the relational depth that it's meant to supply. Let me, let me give you a few other words. How about this one, son or daughter? We see that here in, in verse Four, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. He's picking up the family language, but then it goes grace and peace from God the Father. The reason he marks you out is so that you can be sons and daughters. We see all these ideas come together in a number of spots. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8 is a a wonderful spot. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he created anything that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, he marked us out for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We are so conditioned to believe that our place, our standing, our security is rooted in our resumes. We have this word elect in verse one. We have this word father in verse four. Paul is reminding Titus and us that it is grace It's the grace of God, not our works. It is the grace of God, not our works, that makes us right with him, that locates us into the family of God. I love the way my friend Ryan Kwan says it. We do not audition for the family of God. We don't perform for it. We don't say, pick me, I promise I'll be good. I think the last quote I gave before I took a break a few weeks ago It'll be the first quote I use coming back by Tim Keller. The Christian identity is the only identity in which your identity is received, not achieved. You don't have to earn it. You can't. In fact, you can't earn it. Let me read one more. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I mean, he just builds and builds and builds and builds. I don't know about you. Have you ever sat in front of the mirror and actually said this, just looked at yourself in the mirror? If you're a Christian and said, you are a chosen people. You are a chosen, you are a royal priest. You are, you are, a, you are someone for his own possession. Most of us just say like, you need to lose weight. You need to stop yelling at your kids. You need to do better. I mean, that, that's the narrative that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I just want you to hear how much dignity and security are loaded into that word elect. Your treasure. It's what you are in Christ. Now, I'm making a big deal out of this because it's in our text. I'm making a big deal out of this because the Bible makes a big difference, and it's one of the most life-altering ways you can think about yourself before God. Let's go to the next phrase. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The word for knowledge here isn't simply to know. There's another Greek word for that. This is the word to know deeply and personally, to take a truth and let it grip your heart to be gripped by that, that truth. And when he talks about the knowledge of the truth, there's a generic or general way that it's just all that the Bible teaches that accords with truth. But here where Paul uses it, as he uses it in a number of other places, I think he's using it in a, in a more specific way. Not, not all truths, but the truth. Capital T truth. The big truth of which all of Christianity is built on. And we would call that truth the gospel. Your knowledge of how God brings sinners into his family and calls them sons and daughters. This story of how we failed to live up to the standards of what we were designed to live, but there's one who came, Christ Jesus, who did it in our place and then went to a cross where he died in the place of all that would trust him. He took the judgment that we deserve that we might be seen in the righteousness that he earned. And then he went to a tomb and then three days later rose up again to say it worked. He's saying that truth. That we are not accepted. Let me put it in the context of, of where I'm about to go. We are not accepted because we obey. We are accepted because Christ obeyed. Now I want to bring in the rest of the verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect 
and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He's just building this sequence of statements. This word godliness, it can be translated piety. We translated devout. Simply put, it means to increasingly pattern your life more like God. Ephesians 5.1 talks about that, to, to be imitators of him. But I really love this translation that I found from John Stott this last week. He translates this word godliness as to become God-centered, to become God-oriented. You know, think of the, the shift that's supposed to happen when you get married. You, you go from being your finances to our finances, your time to our time, your home to our home, uh, uh, your dreams to our dreams, your legacy to our legacy. And where you don't make it the R, that's often the cause of a lot of friction in a lot of relationships. It's true in any relationship. It's true when you have children. Now it's no longer you. There's somebody else there that you're oriented towards that matters significantly in your life that previously did not. That's what Paul is saying when grace grips us. Our lives begin to reorient around God. They get built around him. Paul is saying that when God gets a hold of you, when grace grips you, there is a new orientation to your life. Instead of it being self-focused, it becomes God-centered. Instead of it being centered on your marriage, your marriage gets centered on God. Instead of being centered on your career, your career gets oriented around God. That Paul became a servant of God. And an apostle of Christ, he, be, he oriented himself, his time, his abilities, who he was around him. Where I'm getting this is this word, which accords with. What it's saying is that grace is an inseparable link with godliness. This is the main theme of Titus. That's the main theme, is that grace is supposed to change us. It's to do something, that it does more than save us. It actually conforms and transforms us. Perfectly, no, but genuinely, Yes. This is true for every Christian. The Bible, the Bible never gives two categories of Christians. They're not varsity and JV. There's not, there's not like, well, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. There's just Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And I mess it up all the time and thank God for his grace. But his grace is changing me to be built around. That's one of the reasons I believe Paul in verse 4 uses this phrase, a common faith. It's not a unique thing. It's not just for a select few. It's for all. Now, just because it's common doesn't mean we don't mess it up. There's a lot of ways that we can mess this up. I'll, I'll give you just two. One of the ways that we can mess up grace is to minimize it and stop before the end of verse one. Paul, the servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Stop. We can truncate it. We can shrink it. We can say it doesn't, it doesn't do it. It'll get me into heaven, but it doesn't really impact me now. It's not changing who I am now. Now, the other way we can mess it up is to forget the first part of verse one and just focus on which accords with godliness and this emphasis on what we do. The reason I wanted to front load so much on the grace of God before we talk about how we respond to that, which we will do a tremendous amount in Titus, um, is because we tend towards looking at our own resumes as our certificate to be in heaven is our standing to be before him. I found this story this last week by Beatrice Fediak. She wrote a resume for heaven as her obituary. So before she passed away, she wrote out a resume that she wanted to be printed in the paper as her obituary. When she passed at the age of 94, the Winnipeg Free Press, they printed the resume in entirety. And the resume was broken up into, like many of our resumes, you know, objectives and references and accomplishments and hobbies and, you know, training and all sorts of things. And so let me quote a little bit of it for you now. She says this, Lord, 
You know that as a teacher, I never had any teacher's pets. Rather, I put my heart into teaching those with learning challenges or difficult family situations. It was here that I feel I did my best work. I also continued volunteer work, knitting scarves for underprivileged children. And she lists out a number of accolades, which are all wonderful. Praise God for those things. Praise God that we could say those were godly things to do. Those were things to love others. Those were things to be a benefit to others. That is wonderful. But here's where it goes sideways. She ended the resume like this. Lord, I hope that you will find that I've met my objectives and deserve a place in your heavenly home. You know where to find me to further discuss my qualifications. <laughs> like it's humorous, but it's actually really sad. Like that, that God is looking for us to polish up our resumes that we might be welcomed into our heavenly home. She captures where the, the link between grace and godliness can so often go wrong. I think it was Dallas Willard in his book, The, the, the Great Omission, says this. Uh, the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. Words like toil and strive and work and discipline and, and, and what things that we are going to engage with in Titus. It, the grace of God is not opposed to those things, but here's what it is opposed to, earning. Earning. We don't earn it. We don't earn it. We, we, he marked us out. That's, that's why it's such good news. He says, I just chose you apart from anything you did or anything you would ever do. I just said, I want you. I want you to be my son. And I don't want my son to audition for me as dad. I want you to be my daughter. I don't want my daughter to addition to me. I just chose to make you my possession because you're the greatest of people. No, you were the least of people. I just wanted you and I set my love on you. I was in a vacation with some friends and we were in a house we were renting together and we were in the, in the kitchen. One of the questions I like to ask my non-Christian friends is I'll ask them this question. I'll say, hey, what do you think I believe about Jesus and faith? And he just gives this like open-ended, try to hear what they think. And, and almost always you get some response like this. It's great. They go, well, I believe that you think if you do enough good things, then God will let you into heaven. And when that happens, I always feel like you put a ball on like a tee and gave me the world's biggest bat. It's, it just feels like you just set me up because I always respond. I go, oh my goodness, I don't believe that at all. They're like, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe I, I could never do enough to merit a spot in heaven. That's why I trust Jesus, because I need Jesus. He's the only one that could do enough. And I go through this whole, you know, back and forth kind of interaction. This time when I was, uh, that I'm talking about, we're standing around this kitchen. One of my buddies looks at me and he says, then why do you do anything? Then why do anything if Christ did everything? And I love it, because he got the gospel. I said, because I love him. That's Titus. That's what Paul's saying. And I get this wrong all the time, but in that moment, that was right. Why do we, why do we care about godliness? Because we love them. Because we love them. Grace, it does more than we think. All right, that's verse one. Verse two. Um, I got three, three minutes and 36 seconds left on my clock. Uh, this is intentional. So if you're going, oh man, Second service is going long. No, we'll finish. We'll finish quickly. We're going to hit a number of the themes that we see in verses two and three as we go through Titus. But quickly, as he continues this sentence, he points to this idea of, of hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, he promised and now is brought into focus. A key way that this idea of hoping for eternal life connects with godliness is this. It's again around the idea of orientation. What compels us in many ways to live different now is to know that we're not living for now. 
that there's a, there's a different reality that transcends this current cultural moment in which we are living for. We're going to do a deeper dive into this at the end of Titus 2, but I'll just read verses 11 through 13 that connect these ideas of grace and godliness and hope and eternity. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And there it's saying grace has a name and that grace is Jesus, for Jesus has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, awaiting our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Paul is bringing these all together. He's saying grace has shown up, and now grace is training you to live a grace-filled, God-centered life as you wait for the day when the, the, the proper name of grace, King Jesus, comes back and we get to live with him forever. It's a way of orienting ourselves in the moment towards what's coming. Something um, Katie and I have offered to our kids as long as, and I'll tell you, as long as we're able to do it. I keep saying that every time I offer it, I say only as long as we can actually do it because we may not always be able to do it. But I said something we've offered to them is to do a sort of retirement matching. As soon as they have taxable income, I said, if you choose up to a certain amount to put this into a Roth IRA, Mom and dad will match dollar for dollar up to that amount. So they put 10 bucks in, we'll put 10 bucks in. They put 15 bucks in, we'll put 15 bucks in. And what I'm trying to do, talking to a 16-year-old who's thinking about, not thinking about retirement in, in half a century, it's so far out, I'm trying to bring it into focus. I'm trying to help them make countercultural choices now, like saving, not spending, for future-oriented purposes. I love using different tactics for this. Um, this past week, one of the things I did is I pulled up a retirement calculator, sat down with one of my kids, and I said, if you put in this much, mom and dad put in this much, in 50 years at a 7% annualized return, then they go, what? And I said, just trust me, it's great. Hit the, you know, hit enter. And, so it's, and I'm like, really? And I go, you don't have to put any, if you put no more money in, that's how much it's worth. So Paul's doing, he's saying, don't forget where you're going. Right now, though, don't forget where you're going. Get that future vision in your present moment and the choices you make will shift. As Paul says, we can trust it because God never lies. You can bank everything on this. It's not like the retirement calculator and the projections that say, well, if it's 7%, it's this. If it's 10%, it's this. If it's 3%, it's this. I mean, you know, there's some fuzzy math with that. God is saying there's no fuzziness with him. Last part of the last verse. Grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. I love that these verses end like that. Grace and peace. The more we come to a knowledge of the truth, the ultimate truth being the gospel of grace, that Christ did all the obeying, the more we end up with peace. This beautiful word that doesn't mean just the cessation of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. Absolute assurance. Absolute comfort. And to go back to all the stuff I said at the beginning, because we didn't do anything to earn it. That's what makes it such good news. You didn't earn it, so you can't lose it. It'll keep us from polishing up our resumes for heaven. It'll keep us from auditioning for the family that we've already been welcomed into through the work of Christ. Grace really is better than we think. Let's pray. Father, what you make Christ loud, big, brilliant, dazzling, all that he has done. 
God, it changes everything. It really, it really, it really can and really does. And as we go into this series that we're going to talk a lot about what it looks to, to pursue by your grace and the work of the Spirit, uh, transformed and transforming lives. But God, it will not serve us well if we forget the first half of verse one, if we forget the, the, the truth of the, the, that we trust and not that we work for, that Christ, you did it all, that we are accepted because Christ, you obeyed. Keep that really loud. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.